I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the 117th episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and it's crazy to me to think just how many episodes of this podcast have come and gone. I've learned so much by doing this about history that I never knew anything about, and I hope you have too. Last week's episode took place in the 1880s. Today, I'm going to jump forward 100 years and feature a date from the 1980s. The date is June 18, 1983, and I'm taking a headline from the St. Petersburg Times out of St. Petersburg, Florida. This headline says, Shuttle is set to fly today if clouds allow. The article features a huge picture of five astronauts with the Challenger space shuttle in the background. And no, this was not the day that the Challenger exploded. That was 1986. And I've already covered that subject in an earlier episode a year and a half ago, if you need to go back and listen. But there was something else that would define that launch of the Challenger. You see, one of those five astronauts in the picture is Sally Ride, the first female astronaut from the United States to go to space. Sally Ride was born on May 26, 1951. She grew up in Los Angeles and went on to earn bachelor degrees in both physics and English at Stanford University. But she wasn't done yet. She went on to earn both a master's degree and a PhD in physics from Stanford, too. She finished her schooling in 1978. But shortly before Dr. Ride finished her college career, in 1977, she was eating breakfast in the school cafeteria and browsing the school newspaper when she saw an ad from NASA. It said they were looking to hire new astronauts, and for the first time ever, they were allowing women to apply. Sally decided in that very moment that she wanted to go to space, and she immediately sent off a letter to NASA. Out of 1,000 applicants, Sally was chosen with just a handful of other women to participate in NASA's astronaut program. As you can imagine, it's a very difficult training, both physically and mentally, but Sally loved it. She especially loved the part where she got to fly in jets at 500 miles per hour, and practice ejecting and parachuting. In fact, she loved that part so much, she took lessons and got her own pilot's license. At first, Sally worked as the voice of mission control and spoke to the astronauts while they were on their missions in space. But then she eventually became the first female astronaut to actually go to space when she went up with the crew of the Challenger on June 18, 1983. Her assignment on that trip was to be a mission specialist, and she helped deploy satellites, among other things. The crew safely returned to the ground a few days later on June 24th. The next year, Sally got to go on another mission to space, and she was actually scheduled for a third mission, but it was canceled when her fellow astronauts were killed in the Challenger explosion in January of 86. Instead, She served on the presidential commission that investigated that disaster. Right after Sally got back from her first trip to space, NASA sent her on a three-week tour of Europe. 
And I'm going to say right here that there are some that think Sally Ride was the first woman to go to space, but that's not true. She was just the first American woman to go to space. Russia had already sent multiple women to space by 1983. Anyway, so when Sally went to Europe, she was told that she couldn't talk to any of the Russian cosmonauts. The Cold War was still very much going on, and they didn't want any information getting leaked. But when the chance for Sally to meet Svetlana Savitskaya, a woman who had gone to space the year before, came up, she ignored that role and met with her anyway so they could swap stories about what it was like to be a woman in space. Eventually, Dr. Ride left NASA and became the director of the California Space Institute at the University of California in San Diego. She also taught physics. Then in 2001, Sally started her own company where she made educational products and created programs for girls who had interest in math and science. Then, in 2012, at just 61 years of age, Sally Ride passed away from pancreatic cancer. The next year, she was posthumously awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. There are a lot more good things I could say about Dr. Ride, but instead I'm going to open up some more newspapers and see what else was being reported the day one woman made history. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm going to start right off with a doozy of a tell. There were actually reports on two very gruesome tells that day. Both were horrifying and probably worthy of being an additional history story since they were taking place at the same time that Sally Ride went to space. But I didn't want this episode to be too depressing, so I'm only going to share one of the stories. This is one that many of you will probably have heard of from other podcasts and TV shows. Or since the story about this person took place in the 70s and 80s, you might even just remember it. I'm taking a headline from the Los Angeles Times out of California. The headline says, New Charge Delays Craft Arraignment. Friends, if you know who Randy Kraft is, this is his story. Just a few weeks earlier, the serial killer who had been committing murders for more than a decade was finally caught. And while he sat in jail, more and more of his crimes were discovered and horrified a nation reading about him. His name was Randy Stephen Kraft, and he had multiple nicknames. He was known as the Scorecard Killer, and the Southern California Strangler, and the Freeway Killer, although I'll mention that unfortunately there's been multiple serial killers who were known as the Freeway Killer, and Randy Kraft wasn't the most famous of them. I think the term the Scorecard Killer was probably the most fitting term for him, but I'll explain that in a minute. Randy Kraft was born in Long Beach, California in 1945, just months before World War II officially ended. When Randy was born, he already had three older sisters. His family didn't have a lot of money, but both of his parents worked hard. Randy's mom tried to support her kids and make time for them as much as she could while she held down multiple jobs. But his father wasn't really that way, and Randy didn't ever spend a lot of time with him. From a pretty young age, Randy decided that he liked politics, and he announced that someday he was going to be 
a Republican U.S. senator. He got good grades, he had friends, and according to those who knew him, he was pleasant to be around. When his graduation rolled around, he graduated 10th in a class of nearly 400. After high school, he went on to Claremont Men's College and majored in economics. While he was in college, he got involved with the ROTC and would go around protesting in favor of the Vietnam War, which I'm sure you know was not a popular opinion back then amongst college-age students. He also worked on the campaign of Barry Goldwater. On the outside, his life seemed great. But Randy had a secret that he kept to himself through high school and the beginning years of college, although those who knew him best suspected it. Randy was gay, and he struggled to come to terms with it. One night, in 1966, he was caught propositioning an undercover policeman and got arrested. But since he had no prior record, he was never actually charged with anything. About this same time, Randy completely changed his political views and decided he was a Democrat, and he started working on the campaign of Robert F. Kennedy. His life was starting to spiral out of control, and when his senior year of college rolled around, he spent so much time drinking and partying and playing poker that he failed his classes and had to redo his senior year. Fast forward to a few months after graduation, and Randy Kraft joined the United States Air Force. He was there for just over a year. When the Air Force found out about his sexual orientation, though, he was released from his obligations for what they called medical reasons. And that was pretty much the end for Randy Kraft. Less than a year later, he enticed a 13-year-old boy who had just run away from home back to his apartment where he gave him drugs and then assaulted him. The boy managed to escape and then led authorities right back to Randy's apartment, but since they didn't get the proper warrant to search the apartment, and since the boy admitted that he'd willingly taken the drugs, once again, Randy wasn't charged with anything. Remember, he's an adult, the boy was 13. If that one night had gone just a little bit differently, the lives of many others might have been spared. Randy Kraft didn't learn his lesson with that first 13-year-old boy. I am not going to go into the gruesome details of his murders, but know that Randy went on to entice and kidnap many other men and young boys. Then he would assault them, drug them, murder them, and dispose of their bodies, usually in horrible ways. Sometimes Randy would push the bodies outside of his moving vehicle so that others passing by would eventually see them in the ditches alongside roads. That's where the nickname of the freeway killer came into play. Most of Randy's killings took place in California, but he was also blamed for deaths in both Oregon and Michigan. Between 1971 and his capture in 1983, it's believed that Randy Kraft killed 67 men and boys. Unfortunately, the police were only able to connect him and charge him with the murders of 16 of those victims. He was convicted of all of those that he was charged with. And just how did the police finally catch up with Randy? Well, on May 14, 1983, 12 years after he started his murder spree, Randy Kraft was caught completely by accident. 
He was driving down the freeway near Mission Viejo when a cop spotted him driving erratically. The cop pulled him over and decided to do a sobriety test since he could smell alcohol on Randy's breath. Randy failed the test, so the cop handcuffed him. Then the cop asked about the passenger in Randy's car. Randy told the cop that it was a hitchhiker who he'd picked up, and the man had fallen asleep. Except, as the cop did some more investigating, meaning he opened the door to talk to the hitchhiker, he realized that the man was dead. And the situation, including ligature marks on the man's wrist, didn't look very good for Randy. Official reports came back that the man had died from not being able to breathe, most likely from strangulation. Of course, they immediately began digging into Randy's past and where he'd been and when he'd been there and linking together all of the information they could find on murders and crimes at those times and in those places. Which brings us to the article from June 18, 1983 the day Sally Ride made history. There had already been many articles printed about Randy since the middle of May, but since they had just officially linked him to a sixth victim, they decided to postpone his arraignment. He did eventually go to trial, but not until 1988, five years after he was arrested. His trial lasted for ten and a half months before, as I said a moment ago, he was convicted of 16 murders. Randy was sentenced to death for 11 of the murders and given life sentences for the remaining five murders. The judge was smart, and he said that he did it that way so that if any of the murders with the death penalty were overturned, Randy would still stay behind bars. Randy's case has gone through many appeals and delays, but even though the 40th anniversary of his arrest is quickly approaching, he still lives behind bars in San Quentin Prison in California with no end to his life in sight. He is now in his late 70s and will most likely die in prison of something not related to the gas chamber. At the time of his trial, and all these years later, Randy maintains his innocence and refuses to fess up to any of the other murders that he's suspected of committing. So, at the beginning of the story, I told you that I'd explain later why Randy was called the scorecard killer. Since it's now later, I will tell you. When Randy was arrested, police found something in his car that they described as a scorecard. The paper was divided into two columns, with cryptic words in each column. 30 on one side, and 31 on the other side. As the odd paper with random words and information on it was analyzed, the authorities realized there was a pattern to it. It seemed that each entry could be matched, one of Randy's murders. For example, the first entry on the page said, Stable. They believed it linked back to Randy's very first murder victim, who worked as a bartender at Stable's bar. At the time, Randy worked at a different nearby bar and would often visit Stable's. Another entry said, EDM. Authorities believed it referred to Edward Daniel Moore, who was a Marine that had been found on the side of the freeway in 1972. They found stuff belonging to Edward in Randy's home, and that was one of the murders he was actually convicted of. Another entry was marked Skates. That victim was believed to be John Larris, who was last seen getting off a bus in Long Beach with his skates thrown over his shoulder. 
Unfortunately, even after all these years, there are many entries on Randy's scorecard who haven't been identified, which is why he's suspected of so many more deaths. And some of the crimes show evidence, including two sets of footprints at some of the crime scenes, that Randy didn't always work alone. But if he did have an accomplice, will we find out before it's too late? And will Randy finally give in and confess before he dies? I guess we'll have to wait and see. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Capital Times out of Madison, Wisconsin. The headline says, Named in Paternity Suit. This story is about the actor LeVar Burton. He became famous after he played the part of Kunta Kinte in the TV miniseries called Roots that debuted back in the late 1970s. Then in the 80s and 90s, he starred in Star Trek The Next Generation. And for more than 20 years, he read to children around the country on The Reading Rainbow. He's of course been in many more shows and movies since then, but those are the ones he's most famous for. Anyway, one day, LeVar Burton found out that a woman who he'd had a one-night stand with was claiming that she'd gotten pregnant by him and given birth to a son that was already two years old at that point. She decided she needed more money to raise her son and decided to go after LeVar for child support. As a side note, LeVar's lawyer in the situation was none other than the nationally famous attorney, Gloria Allred. But that's not really important here. When the woman came forward, LeVar agreed to take a paternity test, and sure enough, he was named as the father of little two-year-old Ian. Sadly, not every man, when faced with a situation like this, steps up and does the right thing. But LeVar, who was 26 years old when all of this went down, decided that not only would he pay the child support and not fight the situation, but he was also willing to go to court to get shared custody of the young boy that he still hadn't met. That story by itself isn't super exciting and not really worth mentioning, unless you add in the part of the story that happened a year later. Once again, LeVar and his son Ian made headlines. Except that time, it wasn't for praise. The United Press International headline that was circulated in many newspapers in June of 1984 says, Mother Charges Roots Actor Took Son. Yes, a year or so after he was granted part-time custody of his son, LeVar Burton was accused of kidnapping by Ian's mother, Chamara Smith. Chamara claimed that on May 4th, she'd left her son in the care of LeVar. He said that he wanted to take the boy on a two-week vacation in the Midwestern states. But when it came time for the child to be returned two weeks later, LeVar and the little boy were nowhere to be found. Then, Chamara found out that LeVar had gone to Africa. So, she called the police, and the search for the boy began. I'm not sure how much time passed from when the kidnapping accusations were made and when the truth came out, but what really happened was nothing like what Chamara had claimed. According to LeVar, Chamara had called him up, told him she was struggling, and could he please take their son for a while. LeVar agreed and flew out to Chicago to pick up his son. 
but Shamara never gave him a timeline of when she wanted her son back. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and Lavar is set to go to Africa for a promotional tour. He calls Chamara, but she doesn't answer. He tries again. Nothing. Try as he might, he couldn't track down Ian's mother, and he didn't know what to do. So he took his son to his own mother's house so that Ian would be safe with Grandma while he was away at work. When Chamara finally reappeared and found out that Lavar was in Africa, she just assumed he'd taken their son there too. It all worked out in the end, and Lavar didn't get in trouble, and he continues to be a big part of his son's life today. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I could tell you about the story that I saw in pretty much every paper I looked in, but it's not very exciting. Everybody was reporting about Pope John Paul II's visit to Poland. It was political, and that's boring. Instead, I'm going to talk about an article I found in the Los Angeles Times. This was about another fairly big case at the time. The headline says, The Hare Krishna Case. Lawyer wins with style and dedication. This headline caught my attention because there was a big Hare Krishna temple just down the road from where I lived for 14 years. They always had fun festivals that the community was invited to attend. And when my kids were really young, they called the temple Aladdin's Palace, since that's pretty much what it looked like. The group is officially known as the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON, or the Hare Krishnas. The group was founded in 1966 in New York City, and their beliefs are based on Hindu scriptures. That's the most basic of descriptions. Well, fast forward to 1983, and the organization and some of the leaders are sued by Marsha and Robin George, a mother and daughter duo. They are suing for false imprisonment, libel, emotional distress, invasion of privacy, and most interesting to me, wrongful death. I'll get to that part in a minute. Robin George began her relationship and association with ISKCON right after she turned 15 years old. She knew someone that was staying at the Krishna Temple in Laguna Beach, California, and decided to go for a visit. Then, two months later, Robin made the decision to join the group herself, and she moved in with them. Remember, she was barely 15 years old. That was clear back in 1974, and Robin spent the entire next year of her life living with the group from Laguna Beach. They went everywhere from San Diego all the way over to New Orleans. That's when her father, James George, was finally able to locate his daughter. James went to New Orleans, got Robin, and brought her back to California. But it didn't last very long and pretty soon Robin ran away from home to go back and join with the Hare Krishnas again. Finally, in 1975, Robin made the decision herself to leave the cult, and came back to her parents. During the trial, Robin said that the group who the lawyers were referring to as a cult would call her parents meat-eating demons and brainwashed her into staying. The group was also accused of misleading her parents as to where she really was, since she kept getting moved around from one coast to the other. 
On the other hand, Iskon said that Robin came of her own free will, and that every decision she made was just that, her decision. They didn't tell her parents where she was because she told the organization that her parents were abusive to her, and they wanted to keep her safe. Again, on the other side of the courtroom, Robin and her parents said that at times food was withheld from her, sleep was withheld, and she was forced to chant for hours at a time while with Iskon. Fast forward to 1977, two years after Robin had returned, and suddenly James George had a stroke and passed away. Robin and her mother then decided to sue Iskon, and they claimed that the many exhausting hours spent trying to find his daughter two years earlier and then get her to return home had ultimately caused James' health to deteriorate, and that was why he had a stroke. They blamed his death on the Hare Krishnas. The trial began in 1983 and lasted for about five months. When all was said and done, as the headlines suggest, Robin and Marsha George won their case against Iskon and were awarded a massive amount, $32.3 million. That's a lot of money these days. But if inflation is taken into account, that same amount today would be nearly $90 million. It was a huge award, and even though James's death occurred years after his daughter returned, the group was even found guilty of wrongful death. The lawyer for the George family said that he wanted to, quote, pop them where it hurts, hit them with high money damages. Basically, they wanted to bankrupt the group, and an award like that would do the job. Of course, the case was appealed, and it would take a total of 16 years before a final sum was settled on, and it was just a fraction of the original amount awarded. But a good look was taken about how the organization was run, and how it would be run in the future. For today's advertisement, I decided to take an ad, or rather a series of ads, from the Center Daily Times out of State College, Pennsylvania. It's been a while since I've featured an advertisement having to do with movies. So I decided to tell you what was currently playing in theaters, and some of them might even sound familiar to you. First and foremost, there was a new James Bond film starring actor Roger Moore as the title character. That was the year Octopussy was released. Also showing in theaters, having been released the day before, was Superman 3, starring Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor. And on top of those, the movie that you can still see in reruns on TV was Trading Places, the comedy starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. And another theater was showing the latest Richard Gere movie, Breathless while still a different theater was showing older movies from the previous summer. It was showing another Richard Gere movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, along with a little old flick called Star Trek II. It sounds like it was a good time to go to the movies. Friends, once again, thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends about this podcast. I'll be back again next Monday with another full-size episode about a celebratory day for many millions of people across the world. Talk to you later.